chapter 1. Amos chapter 1. You know, God calls and uses all kinds of people. He calls the simple, hallelujah, and he calls the weak. In scriptures, he called priests, and um, today we're looking at Amos, the book of Amos, and God called a farmer, hence I'm wearing my grandfather's farm hat, and wearing my blue jeans, and work boots, and um, if you can imagine living in the northern kingdom of Israel, they were a wealthy people. Amos mentions them as sleeping on beds of ivory. He talks about their palaces. They had great wealth. We're in a time of political and um, economic prosperity. Their military was strong. They had expanded their borders. They were a growing, a strong, a powerful nation, the northern kingdom was, when Amos got sent by God to them. And God did not choose, um, he didn't choose a priest, he did not choose a professional prophet, he didn't choose someone who had been to Bible college or seminary, he chose a country preacher who wasn't even a preacher, he was a farmer. And God came to Amos and told him to go to his people, Israel, and preach to them of their coming doom. And if you can imagine, it's a time of prosperity. They do have the prophet Hosea preaching up there at the time. We talked about him a few weeks ago. And Hosea is preaching a beautiful message about God's love, but yet of the judgment that's coming and um, how they needed to turn to him. And here, all of a sudden, Amos shows up in town, and he shows up at the big fancy city church, and he comes in to preach. And of course, they don't like his message. But this morning, we're going to look at Amos, and I'll take the hat off now. That was just to help you remember that he was a country preacher. Um, let's look at Amos chapter 1. The words of Amos, who was among the herdmen of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. So we find a number of things here in verse number one about him. First of all, let's look at his name. His name, the name Amos means burden. Some people say burden bearer, but it's literally simply <coughs> burden. And Amos chapter 2 and verse 13 gives a good description of Amos. He says, behold, I am pressed under you as a cart is pressed that is full of sheaves. I challenge you to read the book of Amos this week, and as you do, notice the... Um, the agricultural illustrations he uses. You know, when God calls a person and God is using them, one of the things that God will work through is their individual personality. And you find in Scripture, we believe that all Scripture is inspired by God. It was the Holy Spirit that wrote this book. 
Yet the Holy Spirit worked through individual personalities. And so you will find different writing styles along the way. You're going to find songs that are written. You're going to find very eloquent passages of Scripture. Um, you're going to find very plain, very simple, very straightforward passages of Scripture. In the Bible, we see preachers, prophets like John the Baptist who were harsh. Their message was simple. They got it out there. It was to the point. They didn't, they didn't, my dad would say they didn't mess around. They just got out there and they told it like it was. But then you have other prophets um, and you have men like Paul, highly educated, and he very carefully reasons with people and sets out very clear, deep doctrinal passages, um, God, the Holy Spirit, is working through individual personalities, um, through specific people to present his message in different ways. Um, and here we have the prophet Amos, and he even, he uses such descriptive analogies. And here he's describing being a burden bearer. He says, I'm pressed under you as a cart is pressed that is full of sheaves. If you've ever seen a vehicle go by and you can tell it's loaded down because the car is so close to the, um, to, to the, the, the tires. You know, I, I've seen vehicles go by before, a car go by, and you can tell that car is loaded down. And I just wonder what could be in the trunk of that car that could be so heavy to weight it down at the back. And this is what he's describing. He says, I'm pressed under, I'm pushed down. I'm, and the Hebrew word here, pressed, it's literally meaning it's being made to totter. It's just the, the vehicle is not running smoothly. It's wobbling on the wheels from the pressure, from the weight of the burden. And so this is the name Amos. He is, his name literally means burden. We find his occupation. He mentions part of it here in verse number one. He says, first of all, I am a herdman. I was doing some studying on this word herdman, and it's interesting. It's a different word than the normal word for shepherd in the Hebrew scriptures. The normal Hebrew word for shepherd would indicate one who takes care of sheep, and they usually took care of goats as well. But in this, this specific word indicates a special variety of dwarf sheep that were prized for having long hair, um, and their, their wool was going to be very um, coveted because of its um, length and its quality. And so he was a herdman. He took care of these dwarf sheep. He was also a gatherer of sycamore fruit. Look at Amos chapter 7. He mentions this. <coughs> Amos chapter 7, beginning at verse 14. Then answered Amos and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, neither was I a prophet's son, but I was a herdman and a gatherer of sycamore fruit. Sycamore fruit, he's speaking here of the sycamore fig, which um, was a low-quality um, wild fig tree that grows in Israel. It was this kind of sycamore that Zacchaeus climbed up. Um, 
It's actually a cross between a fig and a mulberry. I don't know how they could do that to get something that looks like that. But, um, so apparently this must have been, of course, seasonal work. Regardless, we just see even stronger that he was a farmer. He's a shepherd, he takes care of sheep, and he works in a field tending or in an um, orchard, whatever, gathering these and tending these sycamore fruits. And so we find him as, um, very simply, a farmer. Let's keep going. Um, also, uh, before we leave this idea of farmer, look at, we'd, I, we've already, we just read 2.13, I'm pressed under you as a cart. If you look over in chapter 8, we see another one of his farm illustrations. Chapter 8, and this is God dealing with him directly, so God is using this farm illustration with Amos. Thus saith the Lord God, sorry, thus hath the Lord God showed unto me, and behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what seest thou? Well, Amos is a farmer. He's going to know exactly what he sees in the basket. And I said, a basket of summer fruit. It was obvious to the farmer what was in the basket. Then said the Lord unto me, the end is come upon my people of Israel. I will not again pass by them anymore. And we'll look at that in more detail in a few minutes. But you see throughout the book, as I've already mentioned, his farmer illustrations. Next, let's talk about his audience. Who was he preaching to? Well, first of all, let's look at where he was from. Um, here in one one, he says he was of the herdmen of Tekoa. Tekoa is a um, desert, more deserty area south of Jerusalem, 10, 12 miles, something like that, south of Jerusalem, about five miles from Bethlehem. And so he works out here in this field. Um, God called him to leave his home and to preach. He says here, this is the vision he saw or the word of the Lord he saw concerning Israel. So God is calling him to leave his homeland, to leave the country south of Jerusalem and head up to the northern kingdom. And we've talked about this with each of the prophets so far. Um, so far, each one of the prophets we've talked to have either prophesied to the northern kingdom of Israel or the southern kingdom of Judah. So he lives down somewhere in here and God is calling him to come up here to the northern kingdom to preach to them. As I've already said, Israel was in a time of great prosperity. And as you read through Amos, you find they were sleeping on ivory beds, very wealthy at the time. And God calls him to preach to these wealthy people in the northern kingdom. Let's look at his context. What was going on in the time period in which he lived? Again, back to verse number one, he says he preached in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. So Uzziah was um, the king of the, in the southern kingdom. Second Chronicles 26 tells us about Uzziah. Of course, he was lifted up in pride and he was struck with leprosy. Um, terrible situation with King Uzziah. King Jerob 
Uh, Boam was ruling in the northern kingdom. Uh, 2 Kings chapter 14 talks about this Jeroboam uh, ruling in the north. As, as I've said, it's a time of expansion for the northern kingdom. He also says here, this was two years before the earthquake. Now, it's funny because he doesn't say anything else about the earthquake. You don't find details of the earthquake recorded in Scripture, yet he's writing to these Jewish people who are going to know exactly what he means. I mean, if you talk to someone from Louisiana and you say the storm, everybody knows what storm you're talking about. We could have just had a hurricane. And if you say the storm, it's Hurricane Katrina. Um, some people, it's the flood. Of course, there was a lot of flooding um, in New Orleans during that. We, we were doing an evangelism, um, running an evangelism booth with, for Brother Jerry Pertell, just north of where we lived there in Louisiana, two or three years after um, Katrina. And it, it could have been that, um, that fall after the hurricane, the first fall, that one, a, a group of ladies came and they got on the trailer because there was a big banner that hung up and it said the Great Flood. Well, it was about Noah's flood. And there's pictures of dinosaurs and everything all over the, the, the video trailer. But these ladies come and they get on and they're all excited. Oh, we want to see this. They had this documentary about the flood. And I thought, something's not right. They don't get something, but I'm not sure what it is. And um, said, yeah, that, that was bad. I'm like, well, yeah, it was, but we're not talking about the same thing somehow. Anyway, I don't remember what one of the ladies said. The most vocal of the ladies said something about Katrina, and boy, she wants to see, is this going to get us some help up here? And anyway, um, I had to tell her, no, ma'am, this isn't about our flood. This is about Noah's flood. Oh, oh, anyway, she sat down and listened to see what we had to say about Noah's flood, but Anyway, it was just really funny because for this lady, the words, the flood, meant Hurricane Katrina. And of course, around here, um, I heard people refer to um, Harvey as even the flood, um, the storm. Well, here, Amos is saying, this he's dating it, and he says this happened two years before the earthquake. So there's some kind of a major disaster, I mean, well, we know exactly what kind of major disaster is going to be an earthquake, but finding the exact timing of it, Josephus says that this happened when used, around the same time that Uzziah was struck with leprosy. So that's where Josephus dates it. It's also very likely that Amos was preaching after <coughs> the time of Joel. And this is one reason why I believe that Joel was one of the earliest prophets prophesying before Amos, because look over at Amos chapter 4. Last time we looked at the um, book of Joel, we saw his prophecy about the plague. This was just last Sunday. And it was going to be a plague of locusts. He refers to them as palmer worms. If you remember, he said they're vineyards, they're fig trees, they're olive trees. He very specifically specified all three of those were going to be destroyed by the palmer worm. 
And then he mentioned three others of three other forms or stages of development of the locust. Well, look here at chapter 4 and verse 9. I have smitten you with blasting and mildew when your gardens and your vineyards and your fig trees and your olive trees increased, the palmer worm devoured them. Yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord. Well, if you remember the prophet Joel was telling them, we've already had this one locust plague, we're about to have one far greater return to the Lord. And then Amos comes along and he said, God's already wiped you out with the, the palmer worm. You've already have a, had a plague of locusts, yet you did not return to the Lord. So it appears that Amos is following Joel, which, I mean, could it be significant that in the Bible, I mean, I realize all the prophets aren't in order as they came, but could it be significant that Amos followed Joel because Joel prophesied there's going to be a plague of a terrible plague of locusts. And then Amos gets on the scene and he said, God sent the plague of locusts and you still didn't return. And so things are about to get really bad. Um, regardless, there had been a plague of locusts before Amos prophesied. Um, let's look at his contemporaries. And it's really part of the context. What, <coughs> what other prophets were on the scene when he was prophesying. If we look at our chart again, we see we have Amos here around the years 760 to 753, somewhere in there. Amos is prophesying to the northern kingdom. Um, before Amos, or early in Amos's life, the prophet Elisha and the prophet Jonah would have been ending their ministries so it could be very likely that he could have known these men. During his time, the prophet Hosea is preaching in the northern kingdom, and Joel was likely a contemporary as well, going sometime before him. And then at the end of his ministry, as he is ending his time, um, the prophets Isaiah and Micah begin to prophesy. So these are some of the preachers who are preaching to the nation of Israel during the time of Amos. Let's look at his message, and we're just going to do a quick overview of the book. But as we get into this, a couple of quotes I thought were interesting about Amos's style of writing. J. Vernon McGee said, although he was a, a country preacher, he had the language of a Shakespeare, which is interesting that you would get a guy who tends sheep and who, he's a farmer. That's what he does. And yet he speaks with such eloquence. Um, the Wycliffe Bible Commentary says his language rich in figures and symbols stands with the finest literary style in the Old Testament. So let's look at some of what he was preaching. Amos chapter 1. In Amos chapter 1, he gives us the judgments of God that were coming on the nations of Syria, Philistia, Phoenicia, Edom, and Ammon. Um, beginning in verse number 2, look how he says, and 
he said, the Lord will roar from Zion. So he shows up, he starts his sermon. What's the introduction to his sermon? I would call chapters one and two the introduction to his sermon. And he said, the Lord will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem and the habitations of the shepherds shall mourn and the top of Carmel shall wither. Thus saith the Lord. For three transgressions of Damascus. Well, this is Syria, or as this Bible map has it, the kingdom of Aram, Damascus. Damascus is their capital. So he gives the judgment of God that's coming on them. And he says that Syria shall go into captivity from Kir, saith the Lord. And Kir is a province of the Assyrian empire. And so he says the Assyrians are coming to get them. In verse number six, he begins the prophecy against Gaza, which is down here, the Philistine states. He begins, thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four. I will not turn away the punishment thereof because they carried away captive the whole captivity. Um, then if we look down at verse number verse number 9. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyrus, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they delivered up the whole captivity of Edom. So we have um, Tyrus, which is right up here, the Phoenician states. Notice it's the bordering countries. He shows up. I mean, this shows some real tact here. He shows up and he doesn't just start blasting them. You're in trouble. God's going to judge you. He's going to get a lot of amens from this preaching. Oh, God is going to judge the Philistines. God is going to judge um, the Syrians. God is going to judge the Phoenicians. Amen, brother. Hallelujah. Keep preaching it. There are all these liberals up here in the northern kingdom. They're excited with this message that he's got to preach. If you look down at verse number 13, Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of the children of Ammon, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they have ripped up the women with child of Gilead, that they may enlarge their border. So these people, they had invaded Israel. They had abused the women, killing the pregnant women, ripping them up. Just a really violent group of people, they had invaded Israel trying to enlarge their borders. This is the kingdom of Ammon over here. They're really, he's really going to get some amens for this one. God's going to judge the Ammonites. Hallelujah, that's going to be good. We can't wait. Well, then we come to chapter 2. And when we get to chapter 2, <clears throat> he continues with the same thought. He begins talking about Moab. Look at verse, and here we have the Moabites down here in the south. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because he burned the bones of the king of Edom into lime. So Moab is being judged. Once again, amen, hallelujah. This is exciting for the northern kingdom. But then 
he turns to the Jewish people. <clears throat> and he says in verse number four, Thus saith the Lord for three transgressions of Judah, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof. So now he starts saying the southern kingdom is going to face the judgment of God. Again, this is not the northern kingdom. They have been separate nations for a long time. It's been many years since they warred. But again, it's not them. Look at verse number four. He begins telling the reasons why he's going to judge the southern nation of Judah. And here Amos is preaching about his own nation. He says, because they have despised the law of the Lord and have not kept his commandments, and their lies caused them to err, after the which their fathers have walked. But I will send a fire from Judah, and I will devour the palaces of Jerusalem. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel. Uh-oh. Now, the message is getting hot. Because now, it's not the border nations. He's taking care of all of them. It's not the border nations he's preaching to now. He's preaching to Israel itself. And look what he says. For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they have sold the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of shoes. They plant, sorry, they pant after the dust of the earth on the head of the poor and turn aside the way of the meek. And a father and his, sorry, and a man and his father will go in unto the same maid to profane my holy name. Look at verse 8. They lay themselves down upon um, clothes laid to pledge by every altar, and they drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. In the northern kingdom, they did not worship Jehovah God. In the northern kingdom, they worshiped idols. Verse 9 and especially the golden calf that was their main god. Yet destroyed I the Amorite before them. So he starts talking about all the things he did. He destroyed the Amorite before them. In verse number 10, he brought them out of the land of Egypt. He led them in the wilderness for 40 years. He gave them the land of the Amorite. He says, I did all this. In verse 11, I raised up of your sons for prophets and of your young men for Nazarites. It is, not, is it not even thus, O ye children of Israel, saith the Lord? I did all these wonderful things for you. I blessed you. I brought you out of Egypt. I gave you your land. And yet, what have you done? Verse 12, but ye gave the Nazarites wine to drink. Remember the Nazarites? They made a vow that they wouldn't even eat a raisin. They wouldn't touch anything that came from the vine. But he said, you gave the Nazarites wine to drink. They, they very deliberately, very purposefully, very specifically disobeyed God, very purposefully, and commanded the prophets saying, look at this, prophesy not. You did not want your prophets to prophesy. Thank you, sir. Not cold. not cold is great. Thank you. Thank you. Mrs. Cepeda tells me I should drink the not cold water. See, I do listen to you. 
(laughs) So they're telling their prophets, don't prophesy. Behold, verse 15, I am pressed under you as a cart is pressed that is full of sheaves. Personally, I think that's God talking there and not Amos himself. But still, we see the burden. Therefore, the flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not strengthen his force, neither shall the mighty deliver himself. What's he saying here? You can try to be as strong as you want. You can build your muscles, and they're not going to help you. You can get fast at running, and you're not going to be able to outrun this. It doesn't matter how strong you are, or how powerful, or how mighty you are. You cannot deliver yourself from what God's about to do. Neither shall he stand that handleth the bow, and he that is swift of foot shall not deliver himself. Neither shall he that hideth the horse deliver himself, and he that is courageous among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, saith the Lord. He said, it's bad, you cannot deliver yourself. So, so much for the Nice little sermon about all the neighboring nations. He gets down to it. I think it's also interesting when he gets to, when he preaches about everybody else, it's very short. He says, oh, they're going to be judged. They're in trouble. Okay, they're going to be judged. This is why God's judging them. On to the next people. This is why God's judging them. On to the next people. Judah, he spends a little more time there. He gives more detail, more heart-specific reasons why God is judging them. And then he gets to Israel, and he unloads. They get the big message. There's a couple things I notice from this. Number one, yes, he starts with diplomacy and tact as he shows how God will deal with everyone else. But then he focuses hard on his audience of Israel. I also notice that both Judah and Israel are lumped in with their neighbors. The language of God is the same in dealing with Judah and Israel, which is unbelievable because they're God's chosen people. I mean, we make a big deal out of how God deals with his children differently than he deals with the lost. But yet, as he's dealing with them here in the book of Amos, he lumps them in with all of their neighbors. He uses the same language in dealing with them and how he introduces the judgment that's coming on them. To me, it's as though God is saying, you act like the heathen, I'm going to judge you like you're a heathen. He says, okay, you want to act like the heathen, you worship their gods, you do things like they do, okay, go ahead. Now you're going to be judged like I'm judging the heathen. And so as he's dealing with the nation of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, he pow, 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 addresses each one of the neighbors, and then he gets to the heart of the issue of the kingdom of Israel. And this would be a hard message to sit through on Sunday morning, especially if you're so wealthy and everything's going so good. You look around and you go, God is blessing us. I mean, our money's good. Our military's good. We've expanded our borders. I mean, And God just said he's going to destroy everybody else around us. So things are really good. Things are looking up for us. And as we see in some of these passages, Amos indicates they didn't think that God cared what they were doing. As we get to chapter 3, 
<clears throat> we notice what has been called the key verse of Amos, and I've heard this misquoted, well, not misquoted, misapplied many times. Let's look at Amos 3.3. 3. Can two walk together except they be agreed? Now, I've always heard that <clears throat> applied primarily to unity and people working together and getting along and um, even to marriages, if we're not in unity, if we're not unified, if we're not of the same mind, um, we can't walk together. We, ha we have to be in agreement. But God is not talking about two people here. Can two walk together? He's talking about God and the nation of Israel. And if you, if you study chapter 3, take 3, verse 3, in its context, God is saying, I can no longer walk with Israel because we're not in agreement anymore. Israel was no longer agreeing with God. They had departed from God. They had departed from his ways. He's already explained how they had done that. They were disobeying God's law. And God said, can two walk together except they be agreed? This is a clear indication that Israel and God were no longer on the same team. If you look at verse 13, he begins dealing with their religion and their wealth that was on the verge of falling. Hear ye and testify in the house of Jacob, saith the Lord God, the God of hosts, that in the day that I shall visit the transgression of Israel upon him, I will also visit the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. Their false religion is going down. And I will smite the winter house with the summer house. I mean, these are rich people. You know, they got the house in the city and up in the Hamptons. You know, I mean, these are the kind of people he's dealing with here. He said, you got your winter house and your summer house? He said, they're both going out. And the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall have an end, saith the Lord. You're only going to have ruins when I get through with you. Chapter 4, he deals with the heifers of Bashan. This is an interesting chapter. In verse 1, he says, Hear this word, ye kind of Bashan, which are in the mountain of Samaria, which oppress the poor, which crush the needy, which say to their masters, Bring and let us drink. Now, this, these words he uses here to address them, the kind of Bashan that are in the mountain of Samaria. Samaria was the capital. The, the cows of Bashan, Bashan was an area in southern Syria that was known for its um, very healthy cattle. It was the place that you would take your herds if you wanted them to be strong, have plenty of pasture, these were good cattle, healthy cattle. In Psalm 22, um, David, as he's prophesying of the crucifixion of Christ, uses the bulls of Bashan to describe how, how violent, how strong, how powerful they are. And he shows this, this brutal picture of them attacking. But that's not what Amos uses here. He doesn't call these wealthy, well-fed people in Samaria, in the capital city, he doesn't call them the bulls of Bashan. He calls them 
the heifers, the female cows of Bashan. So it's interesting, this word kine, the heifers, in modern English, heifer sounds a little more insulting, right? What he's indicating is, you're well-fed, you're luxurious, you got it made, but all you are is a bunch of heifers, you're a bunch of cows. And then he continues it, verse 3, and ye shall go out at the breaches, every cow at that which is before her, and ye shall cast them into the palace, saith the Lord. God is taking them out in verse 2. He says he's leading them out, drawing them out with hooks. God is going to deal with these heifers of Bashan. In verse 9, we've already talked about this. In verse 9, he references probably the locust plague of the book of Joel, and he said God sent this. God tried to get your attention, but you've uh, I mean, he's already set it up. You heifers is who he's, how he's addressing them right now. He said, you didn't return to the Lord. So he comes to the point where in verse 10, he describes, he compares what's going to happen to them. It has happened to them um, as what happened to Egypt in verse number 10. In verse number 11, he said, some of you, God had dealt with them and overthrown them as he had Sodom and Gomorrah. So he deals with two wicked civilizations. He said, God has dealt with you like he dealt with the Egyptians. Then he said, God dealt with some of you like he dealt with Sodom and Gomorrah. He's saying, you're wicked. You're not returning to the Lord. In verse 12, therefore, thus will I do unto thee, O Israel, and because I will do this unto thee, Prepare to meet thy God, O Israel. You're about to die. Get ready to die. Prepare to meet God. This farmer is not messing around. Again, remember, we got the farmer preacher showing up. My dad would say, it's country come to town. And when he gets there, he doesn't mince words. He lays out what God has told him to say the way God told him to say it. As we get to chapter 5, we've got to keep moving. Chapters 5 and 6 are a lamentation. A lamentation is a song of mourning, a song of sorrow. We might refer to it as a funeral song. Of course, we try to give songs of hope at a funeral, right? Well, in Israel, that's not how you did it. In the Middle East, and, and still apparently in some countries in the Middle East, a funeral is a time for wailing and weeping. And in the time of Jesus, if you didn't have enough people to mourn for you, it showed you weren't you know, a good enough person, so they would hire mourners. Um, I don't know where you'd go to hire them. I don't know if they had an agent or what, but you would, you would set up for mourners to show up at your funeral or your relative's funeral. And you know, it was kind of the contest of who has the most people crying the loudest and the hardest, you know, all that shit. Oh man, that guy was really loved because they had a whole bunch of people crying for them. So lamentation, weeping, wailing was a big deal at a funeral in the Middle East. Well, a funeral song, often the prophets would write funeral songs. They would write lamentations. They were basically, as one um, commentator said, he said it was like reading a lamentation about your country was like reading your obituary in the newspaper. 
you pick up the newspaper, you read, oh, I died yesterday. I died yesterday. I'm still alive. Am I dead? Or either you read in the newspaper in the obituary column that you're dying tomorrow. You're finding out it's as good as done. I am dead. So when the lamentation starts getting sung for you, you know I am dead. And so he lifts up this lamentation, and he begins it in verse 2. The virgin of Israel is fallen. She shall no more rise. She is forsaken upon her land. There is none to raise her up. So he starts laying out this funeral song. Um, Verse number 2 is intense, but um, verse 16, um, verse through 18, um, Let's keep going. We, we don't have time to look at this. I challenge you to read it and just notice all that God is saying about their destruction in this funeral song. But in the midst of this funeral song, he gives them an opportunity for mercy. Look at verse four. For thus saith the Lord unto the house of Israel, seek ye me and ye shall live. He's giving them an opportunity for repentance. I mean, it's like Jonah showing up at Nineveh. God's gonna destroy you. He tells them when, but then they repent and God doesn't. He's told Israel, God's going to destroy you. And, but then he says, if you seek God, you'll live. In verse number six, seek the Lord and ye shall live. Verse number eight, seek him that maketh the seven stars and Orion. Verse 14, seek good and not evil that ye may live. And so the Lord God of hosts shall be with you and ye um, as ye have spoken, verse 15, hate the evil and love the good and establish judgment in the gate. It may be that the Lord of God of hosts will be gracious unto the remnant of Joseph. So in the midst of this funeral song, God offers them mercy. In the midst of this funeral song, he also tells them that they're going to be taken. If you look in verse 27, therefore will I cause you to go into captivity beyond Damascus. Well, if you look right here, we've already looked at Damascus. That's the capital of Syria. Where were they going to be taken? The, the northern kingdom was going to be taken up into the Assyrian captivity. Where were they going? Where did they end up going, history tells us? They went beyond Damascus. So Amos tells them, well, what, 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 what was the big world power beyond Damascus? These people knew exactly who was coming to invade them. If they were paying attention, they would not only know that they were going to be destroyed, he was telling them who was going to do it. It was the Assyrians. Let's go to chapter 7. In chapter 7, he gives three visions there were the grasshoppers in one through three. There was the fire in four through six. And there was the plumb line in verses seven through nine. In the last part of chapter seven, we see God's message is rejected. The priest, um, Amaziah at Bethel, he sent word to Jeroboam that Amos has conspired against you. He said the, the, the land cannot handle his sermon. It's going to destroy us. He says, you're going to be killed by the sword. He says, the whole land is going into captivity. Then he turns around to Amos in verse 12, and he tells him to stop preaching. Um, prophesy no more um, in verse 13. 
Then in verse 14, he speaks up and he says, I wasn't a prophet. I wasn't a prophet's son. I was a farmer and God called me and God gave me the message and sent me up here to preach. In other words, I'm not a professional preacher. I didn't come up here to make money. God sent me here and I'm not leaving. And look what he says. You say prophesy not. In verse 16, now therefore hear now hear thou the word of the Lord. Thou sayest prophesy not against Israel and drop not thy word against the house of Isaac. Therefore thus saith the Lord. This is what he says to the priest of of um the priest of the northern kingdom here. Thy wife shall be an harlot in the city, and thy sons and thy daughters shall fall by the sword, and thy land shall be divided by line, and thou shalt die in a polluted land. And Israel shall surely go into captivity forth of his land. He said, it's going to be bad for you personally. You've rejected this message. You're in big trouble with God. In chapter number eight, we see the basket of summer fruits. What's the point of the basket of summer fruits? The point is the fruit's ripe, so we picked it. We put it in the basket. You're ripe for judgment. You're ready to be destroyed. The nation's sin has gotten ripe, and God is going to pick you like fruit. In other words, your time is up. And in chapter nine, we see the beginning starts with the destruction of Israel, but then we see that they would be restored. As we see so many of this, these prophets come saying Israel's going to be destroyed, but then they end with the promise that God will restore them. Look at verse 10. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, which say the evil shall not overtake nor prevent us. Bad is not going to happen to us. In that day, I will raise up the tabernacle of David that has fallen, and I will raise his ruins, and I will build it as in the days of old. Anyway, come down to the end. Verse 14, look at his words, and I will bring again the captivity of my people of Israel, which we've already seen happening as the Jewish nation is being, has been resettled and is continuing to be built stronger. And they shall build the waste cities and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and drink the wine thereof. Not only are you going to plant, but you're going to drink it. He said, they shall make gardens and eat them, eat the fruit thereof. And I will plant, speaking as a farmer here, he says, God is going to plant them upon their land and they shall no more be pulled up out of their land, which I have given them, saith the Lord thy God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a covenant-keeping God. And while Israel turned against you, while Israel rejected you and rejected your word, and there had to be severe judgment, yet, Lord, we thank you that before our very eyes and in the daily news, we see that you are restoring your land. And, Lord, we know that the story is not over. We know there's more bad to come for Israel before that day when you completely establish them. But Lord, we thank you that you are keeping your promise. And Lord, we thank you that we know because we've seen you keep your promises to Israel that you will keep your promises to us. I pray that you would help us to walk in obedience to your word. Lord, I pray that you would show us our sin, you would convict us of our sin, and that we would deal quickly with it. 
Lord, so that we can walk daily in your mercy. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the power it has. And Lord, I thank you for this country preacher who had the boldness to obey you and take your word where you sent it. In Christ's name we pray, amen.